uh, the Branksonites, and I, maybe if, um, yes, I'll be telling the Branksonites to re-enchant your worldview. I don't know if Shamus said something similar, but you need to re-enchant your worldview because we're Christians. We're supernaturalists. We believe that there are spirits. We believe in angels and demons. We believe that God spoke the world into existence and fashioned everything in six days. We are unapologetically supernatural, living in a culture that is unapologetically opposed to anything supernatural. And so when we come to the Scriptures and we find that the Scriptures are indeed unashamedly supernatural, we often get a bit, I don't know, we feel a bit uncomfortable, don't we? Because we... You know, it, it seems a bit bizarre, and how would I go explaining this to my friend? And well, they say we're a little crazy, right? Well, today we're going to be looking at some pretty, uh, pretty crazy supernatural stuff. I mean, you guys, I've heard, I've already been doing it, and, you know, the Nephilim and Genesis 6, I know that Shem talked about that. You guys have been talking about the, um, uh, the, 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 the stuff in Egypt, right, the magicians. So we know that this stuff exists, but we're going to see a little bit more about that in our passage today. But before I get there, we're not in a series on the supernatural, are we? We're in a series on the covenant. And the covenant is revealed in narrative form as God is bringing His unfolding plan of salvation. It's happening in stages. It's this ongoing expansion of revelation across time and it's showing us how God intends to save mankind from a world that is steeped in sin and decay and death. We are introduced to the battle between the woman's seed and the serpent seed and how all throughout the Bible it has been spiritual warfare. Warfare between those who are faithful to the covenant of God and those who are covenant breakers and who rebel against God and refuse to keep His commandments. We see that there are those who've fallen under the lies and the power and the sway of the kingdom of darkness. And now in the Mosaic covenant we come to the descendants of Abraham who God has now fashioned into a nation. While they rebelled and they had stayed in Egypt and they forsook the covenant of Abraham and they forgot their God and they worshipped the idols of Egypt, God still remembered them. He remembered His promises. He remembered His covenants. And He rescued Israel from Egypt and He has turned them into a covenant nation. And last week we saw that nation stand in front of Mount Sinai as God descended as a consuming fire on the top of that mountain and said to Israel, His beloved treasured possession, these are my commandments. And these were the Ten Commandments. And He required His people to keep them. They were supposed to be a nation that wasn't going to be like the other rebellious nations who would worship the one true God, who wouldn't go after idols and who wouldn't worship false gods. And what happened? Despite how gracious God was, despite the salvation that God had wrought in them, despite how again and again He blessed them and provided for them food and water and meat, we find a way again and again to make an enormous mess of things. Israel breaks the covenant roughly 38, 39 days later after God said it to them. They worshipped a golden calf. And that's kind of where we left off last week. But it doesn't get much better. As they journey through the wilderness, they grumble in the desert. They're afflicted by serpents and God heals them again. They come close to the promised land and they send spies out to see what the land is like. And when they return, they complain about how it's utterly impossible for us to do what God has sent us to do. It is impossible. It will not happen. We cannot do this. Have a listen to Numbers uh, 14, 32 to 33. got numbers 13 written down, but I'm certain it's numbers 14. Just going to check real quick. 
No, okay, numbers 13, I was wrong. One page, verses 32 to 33. These are the spies, it says, so they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. It's a very interesting report, isn't it? What we see here is the Nephilim again. We saw them in the pre-flood world, and now they have shown up in the promised land. Remember, there is always a lot going on behind the scenes. The sons of God, it seems, who were ruling over the land of Canaan, had committed the same abomination that we saw in the days of Noah. They had decided to populate their land once again with their own offspring, known as here the Anakim. It appears that Anak was one of their uh, sons, and then he had more sons and populated the world with these Nephilim. Why? They know that God is bringing Israel back to the land, don't they? They know the promises. They know that they are going to get overthrown militarily. And so they decide to get one up on God and populate their land with mighty warriors, with men who will just annihilate anyone that comes in. And the iniquity we hear, see here of the inhabitants of Canaan is now complete because God is now going to bring a judgment upon these people. He's going to bring a judgment upon these gods. And these gods, you must believe, are wicked beyond belief. They are hardcore. Uh, Deuteronomy 12.31 says, For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burned their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. In this land, child sacrifice was rampant. The whole situation was a mess. And this is what spiritual warfare looks like. Our struggle, we know it is not against flesh and blood, but it is against the cosmic powers of this present darkness who deceive the nations and try to make the nations into their own image. And all throughout the Mosaic Covenant, it's been spiritual warfare. And I don't even have time to mention the prophet Balaam. I don't have time to mention the goat demons of Leviticus 17. But the Bible is unapologetically supernatural. And the spies saw this land and their hearts melted within them. They desperately tried to convince the Israelites, we cannot go into this land. We are going to get squashed. We're like grasshoppers to these people. We cannot overcome them. I don't know what God is thinking, but He's insane. Numbers 14.4 says something amazing. And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. They want to abandon God's covenant. They want to abandon their identity. They want to return to the situation that they had in Egypt. We much preferred their gods. We much preferred our slavery. We much preferred it when things were easy, even though they were hard. Because this, our freedom, is far more scary. This is the tenth time now that Israel has tested God. Ten times. They've afflicted God. They've doubted His goodness and God has had enough. None of these Israelites would ever reach the promised land. God says to them, none of you are going into my rest. None of you are going in to receive what I promised you. You could take these Israelites out of Egypt, but you couldn't take the Egypt out of the Israelites 
He says only Caleb and Joshua would come to the land because they were the two spies that said, no, guys, we can do this. Everyone else said, we can't do this. And we see here that Israel fails to enter the Sabbath rest of God. This is when God would give them a rest from their enemies. We sung about that in Psalm 18 just before. This is my first point. I know that was like a really long introduction, but the first point is the sign of the covenant. We have to talk about the Sabbath. And I hope Shem hasn't t- talked about the Sabbath. Has he talked about the Sabbath heaps? Or... We're going to do it again, if he has. Anyway, the Sabbath was the covenant sign of the Mosaic Covenant. So there were two ongoing signs of the Mosaic Covenant. You had the Passover, and the Passover was done once a year. Once a year, they would gather together, they would kill a lamb, and they would um, p- uh, celebrate the Passover when God rescued them from Egypt. But they had a sign that was done every week to remind them of the covenant. That was the Sabbath. The Saturday, the last day of the week. Have a listen to Exodus 31, 16 and 17. It says, Therefore the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. It's very interesting that now God requires his people to recognize the Sabbath, thousands of years later from the creation of the world. The creation of the universe was so long ago, and yet now God requires the Israelites to cease work in the Sabbath. Why? Well, there's a few reasons. Firstly, the nation of Israel was to be God's nation, and so they needed to be marked by His character. Jesus says in Mark 2, 27, the Sabbath was made for man, but not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a gift given to God's people so that they could have rest. They could be blessed. You know, there was no such thing as a weekend in the ancient world. You worked every single day. You didn't get a break. And God says, no, I rested. You must rest. Recuperate your strength. Be blessed. Have the day off. Don't let anyone do any work. But God is no longer resting. God rested on the seventh day from his works. But the world has now been broken. And God is now at work. And he has not ceased from his work since the world was broken. He is restoring the world again. Jesus says as much when referring to the Sabbath. He says in John 5, 17, he says, My father is working until now, and I am working. God is at work, and he has not ceased since the fall of humanity. The Israelites were on a mission. They were on a mission to take the promised land. Just like Jesus gives us the great commission to go out into all the world and preach the gospel, he has given to the Israelites a mission as well. Go and take the promised land. They were to work alongside God every day to bring about his purposes. But they were to rest on the Sabbath, a day holy to the Lord, to learn from God, to recuperate their strength, and then to go back out into the mission of God. Israel didn't exist for their own sake. They were given a purpose and a mission and a goal. They needed to be moving. They needed to be doing stuff. They needed to be working alongside God, and then they would get their rest. God promised in Deuteronomy 25, 19, He says, Therefore, when the Lord has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. Now, do you see how rest is described here? Rest from enemies. A rest from enemies. And one of the things that Sabbath rest does is it reminds the Israelites that God has a greater rest for them, a greater future for them of relaxation and peace and prosperity, a place where they are safe, where they're secure. 
A place that is well-fed and nourished and protected where they don't have to fret and be anxious every day. God has this rest plan for them. And after the spies had called Israel once again to doubt God, that generation, it says, were going to fail to reach that rest. They weren't going to reach it. Everything that their lives were moving towards, they would not receive. I mean, listen to how God just eviscerates them in Psalm 95. He says, for 40 years, I loathed that generation. (laughs) He says, they are a people who have gone astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Do you know what Psalm 95 is talking about? This moment here with the spies. God says to them, you will not enter my rest. They would not receive the promised land. They would not receive safety. They would not receive security. Their enemies would remain around them. Instead of the land flowing with milk and honey, all they would know was the hot, dry wilderness where they would die. Instead of marching there up into the rest that God had promised, their disobedience disqualified them from ever getting there. And most of them failed to attain that blessing. And this is true for us. God has actually used this story with the spies right now and applied it to New Covenant Christians in Hebrews 3. Listen to what he says in Hebrews 3, at the end of Hebrews 3. He says, And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. See, our great hope is that we will inherit the kingdom of God. That is our great hope. That we will be at rest from all of our enemies. That final promised land where all the enemies will be destroyed, where they will be made a footstool for the feet of Christ. When that great enemy of all enemies, death and the devil, are destroyed after Jesus inherits all the nations. And what does Hebrews tell us? Why did the Israelites fail to inherit the promised land? Unbelief. Unbelief. They didn't believe God. When God said, you're going to go into this land and take it, they said, nah, we can't. You're wrong. God, you're wrong. You have no idea what you're talking about. They didn't trust that he was going to rescue them. They doubted his goodness. They refused to do what he commanded them to do. And so God rejects them. Listen, we can do that too. We've been given a mission. We've been given a purpose. We've been given a direction. And often we doubt God too. We don't actually think he's going to take the nations. We don't actually think that his gospel will triumph. We don't actually think that people will be saved. We doubt that God can even do it. As if you can do it. Do you know what it's like out here? Have you seen these kinds of people that we have to deal with every day? How can you defeat your enemies, God? (laughs) Hebrews is warning us in the New Covenant, do not fail to reach the promised rest. Do not doubt the goodness of God. Don't doubt the trustworthiness of Christ. Don't fall away from Christ. Keep pushing on. Be like Caleb. Be like Joshua who saw all the enemies arrayed against them. And listen to what they say in Numbers 14. This should put a fire in your bones. He says that the Lord delights in us 
He will bring us into this land and He will give it to us. A land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land for they are bread for us. They're our lunch. We're going to eat them. We're going to take their lunch money. Their protection is removed from them. The Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Church, we need more men like this. We need more women like this who fearlessly press into the darkness knowing that the light of their Heavenly Father goes with them. If Christ has said that all authority in heaven and on earth is given to Him, therefore go, we should respond like Caleb and Joshua and say, they're bread for us. Let's go get them. Let's move forward to that breach. Let's disciple the nations into obedience to Christ. We don't even, very few of us do it in our own lives. Make ourselves disciples and obey what Christ has commanded us, let alone the world. We ought to remember that the sons of God who were dispossessed from the promised land, when Christ has come, He's dispossessed them from everywhere. Those powers and principalities God has triumphed over in Christ. They have no authority left. All of the nations belong to Christ now. They are His for the taking. It's like King Arthur. When King Arthur saw that there was a pretender on the throne, you could say, well, I guess some other dude's king, even though I'm the rightful king, so we're not going to do anything about it. We'll just let this guy rule. No! King Arthur is the rightful king, and we will dispossess this pretender who is on the throne. We do the same with the nations. These pretenders who pretend to rule the nations, they are not God. And he, they are not his, uh, the, the people of those powers and principalities anymore. And paradoxically, it's, it's, it's men who Sabbath well, women who Sabbath well, who advance the kingdom well. It is men and women who, full of faith in God, can kick back for a day knowing that God is the one who fights with us and for us. Jesus promises to be with us wherever we go, and each Sunday we gather together to exhort and encourage each other, to spur one another to love and good works, knowing that the Lord is faithful to His promises, that He will give us this rest, not just one day of the week, but eternally from all our enemies. And that was the plan for Israel. Every Saturday for them, they would rest from their work and every other day they would link arms with God and march on the purpose and the mission that God has set for them. Every Saturday, a day holy to the Lord to sing His praises. There's a psalm that talks about walking through the camp of Israel and hearing the sounds of praises in the tents of all of God's people. Throughout the journey towards the promised land, God taught them. He carried them. He loved them. And he was going to give them the promised land. They just had to believe. I'm going to talk now about the law of the covenant. It's my second point, the law of the covenant. And have you ever noticed when you, like I assume a lot of you guys have done the, the Genesis to Deuteronomy slog. Like I know there's a lot of hard stuff to read in there. But as you read it, it's not like here's a bunch of narrative and then here's all the laws combined in this one section of the law, and then here are um, all of these other things that are in, like here's all the sacrifices put in here. No, they're, they're actually all jumbled up together, aren't they? There's a narrative, and then there's some lore, and then there's some more narrative, and then there's some sacrifices, and then there's more narrative, and then all of a sudden the tabernacle's in here, and then all of a sudden we're talking about how many people have come, and it's all just like jumbled up together, but it's not random, it's not arbitrary, it's by design. Now, God teaches them all along the way. I mean, listen to how Hosea 11.3 speaks about how God rescued Israel from Egypt. He calls him Ephraim here. He says, yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms 
but they didn't know that I healed them. He likens himself to a father who's training his little son, teaching him how to walk, picking him up in his arms and hugging him. God takes the Israelites by the hand and he teaches them how to walk. How did he do that? His law. He wanted them to grow up into mature manhood, to be adults as a nation. And so God, throughout the story, progressively reveals more and more about the law, doesn't he? He reveals more and more about his commandments. And he teaches them again and again, this is what it means to be a righteous people. This is what it means to be my treasured possession. This is what it means to walk in this world. And we're going to discuss the law in a bit of depth now because this is important to understand in the covenant requirements. The law of God comes to Israel with three different functions or three different aspects to it. You can summarize these as moral, judicial, and purity laws. Some people call them ceremonial laws, but I think that word in English no longer carries the same meaning. I I reckon purity laws is the way to go now. In the moral law, God tells them how to behave in upright and moral ways. In other words, this is what it looks like to be a righteous person, a good person, a person that does what is pleasing to God. In the judicial law, God gives them instructions on how to punish criminals and how to make restitution when someone defrauds or steals from their fellow Israelites. And lastly, we have the purity laws, which are all the instructions on how to worship God and how to be a distinct people from the nations around them, what to eat, how to dress, how to shave your beard, like a lot of things are in the purity laws. And it only takes a short reading of the law of Moses to know that we don't follow all these laws as Christians, do we? And it sometimes catches a lot of Christians off guard because they're like, why aren't we doing this stuff? Like, we we seem to obey some of this stuff, but then other of these things we don't obey. Well, the moral laws are very important because they show us what good morality looks like. Uh, people get very confused because they begin to blend the moral and judicial and purity laws all together. They jumble them all up and then they say, we've got to follow all of them. But we can't. Why? Well, we don't have a temple, for starters. We don't have a tabernacle. There's a whole bunch of stuff that we don't have. The moral law tells us that it's wrong to murder, that it's wrong to commit adultery or to bear false witness or to steal. I mean, we ought to already know that, right? Before God, God shouldn't have to come and tell us, you ought not to murder someone But he did, because we needed it. And he had to. Because if he didn't say it, we could, in our own cleverness and ingenuity, say, oh, this thing over here isn't murder. This thing isn't murder. Uh, uh, We're not murdering, right? You can do that with abortion, right? You can say, well, we're we're not murdering anyone. But God's law comes in and says, no, it is. It's murder. You can't get away from it. It just restricts you. It tightens you down. You go, oh, okay. I can't get out of that. You can call this the normative use of the law. It teaches us how to not do wrong things and how to please God, to honor God in obedience to Him. And then we have the judicial law. Now, the judicial law is pretty much almost very similar to the moral law. You could say that it piggybacks on the moral law because the government doesn't always punish every wrong thing. You can't punish every wrong thing. You punish some wrong things, right? And so it shows the government how do we punish criminals. It acts as a deterrent as punishment, not rehabilitation. It's not the way that our modern uh, justice system works. Judges will apprehend, punish criminals for wrongdoing to purge the evil from their midst, to keep evil in check and to stop it from spreading like wildfire. Like, isn't it interesting that 
we all know what would happen if the government failed today. Let's say government, gone, just like it gets Thanos, it's all out of existence now, right? And the police are all gone. What would happen? Would it usher in an age of utopia and we'll all jump around singing and dancing because we're all free now? No, we know that this will turn into chaos very, very quickly. That's an indictment on human nature, isn't it? That's an indictment on who we are, that we would turn to violence and theft and robbery and rioting and mobbing and stealing. We need the law as a deterrent to deter criminals, to keep them in line, because there are people who will not obey, who will not listen, apart from someone stronger than them saying, you better obey or it's going to be terrible for you. See, when a wise people want to know how to rule justly and righteously, they ought to look into the perfect law of God and they ought to learn what justice looks like. It doesn't mean that we copy and paste the laws of Moses and we throw them in our penal code. But it does mean that we take the principles of justice from God's law, uh, the Westminster Confession calls it the general equity of the law, and we apply it to our own judicial system. It tells us what proportional punishment looks like. It tells us how to make restitution of wrongs committed against one another. And our job is to work out how these principles of justice apply to us in our context and to our societies and what goes on here. And lastly, we see the purity laws. Now, the purity laws are laws that are specifically directed towards Israel. They are things that keep Israel distinct and communicate whether they are clean or unclean. And these are usually what you would think of when you read the law about something being clean and something being unclean. For example, if you gave birth, you're unclean for a certain period of time. Uh, If you have sex at certain times, that makes you unclean. Eating unclean foods like pigs or shellfish makes you unclean. In fact, it's impossible Just living makes you unclean. It's impossible to always stay clean. Throughout your life, you're going to find yourself becoming unclean. Simply just living did that to you. And what does it mean to become unclean? Well, mostly it means you can't go into the presence of God in the tabernacle. You have to stay away from the tabernacle because you are unclean. Because you cannot bring your uncleanliness into God's presence. So you had to make yourself clean. You had to rid yourself of your uncleanness. To come into God's space requires careful consideration of your life. The idea is no curse, no death, no decay can come into God's presence. He's righteous. He's holy. He's perfect. For instance, you can't come into the tabernacle when you recently had a baby. Why? Well, doesn't God love babies? Doesn't he love families? Doesn't he love children? Yeah, he does. There's blessing. And why can't a woman who's just given birth go into the temple? You'd think she would be like the one person that probably could right? Because in Genesis 3, childbirth is cursed. And you cannot bring a curse into the tabernacle. The hardship, the misery, result of sin. You can't come into the tabernacle after you touch a dead body. Why? You cannot bring death into the presence of the God of life. All these things were teaching principles to communicate to the Israelites that they are mere men. They're women. They're humans. They're tainted. Tainted by sin. Corrupted by the death and decay of this world. They're dying men and women walking into the presence of the true and living God. You had to make yourself clean first before you got in. Then you could come before God. And these laws tell us, most of those laws are telling you Here's what makes you unclean, and here's how you get clean after you've done this unclean thing. 
There was various washings and there were various sacrifices. And they're invasive. They're intense. They're designed to be that way. God is holy and he sees us right down to our depths. He sees all of us. He's so different to us. He is he's life. There is no death in his presence. There's no sin in his presence. There's only righteousness. Do you see that the Lord teaches us in very clear terms, this is how you view God. This is how you view him. And when you put it all together, what the Lord Moses shows us is that God wants to rule over everything. He is not content with ruling over his people on the Sabbath or for us on a Sunday or any other time of the week. He doesn't want our mornings and our evenings. He wants everything. Nothing is untouched by the law of God. Nothing is untouched by his goodness. He wants every aspect of his people to be saturated with his righteous character. There is nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with God's law. It is perfect. It is holy. The problem isn't with God's law. The problem is with us. We're the problem. The law of Moses intersects with the people who are sinful, who are full of the culture and leaven of Egypt. What we cannot escape is that the law of God requires utmost perfection. It isn't interested in indulging us. It doesn't come along and say, oh, well, you tried your best. Look, your best isn't good enough in the law of Moses. Only perfection is good enough. It cannot excuse us. It just brings down harsh penalties. It has to be that way. You must understand, it has to be that way. It cannot be anything less. He doesn't weigh your good deeds and your bad deeds. He doesn't establish you as a good person or a bad person. It just tells you where you've gone wrong. The law is not bad. It is exactly what you would expect from a perfect and holy God. Just think about it. Could God compromise without compromising His justice? If He required something less than perfection... Wouldn't he be admitting and allowing sin? And could there be a good judge that admits and allows sin? See, we have this tension always throughout the Bible of God's justice and his mercy. And they sit uncomfortably alongside each other because we ask, how can God be just if he gives people mercy? And how can he give people mercy if he's just? And the the law shows us that. He demands perfection. Deuteronomy 6.25, he says, and it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do this commandment, uh, sorry, if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. Listen to that. All of this commandment. Not a little bit here. Not 80% of it. Not 99% of it. 100% of it. You have to do. And you know what's funny? It's the same in the new covenant. It might be shocking to you, but Jesus, it says the same thing. Matthew 5, 48, he says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. You starting to sweat a little bit? I'm sweating. Why? It's impossible. God is asking of us the impossible. But what is impossible with man is not impossible with God. If you think that you can be perfect before God, then go for it. Go for it. Run. Chase that dangling carrot. No matter how fast you go, it's always out of reach. No matter how hard you try, you can never get it. Because these passages we see here, they're like a whip. And no matter how much you accomplish for God and how much you obey Him, these passages whip you and say, not good enough, not good enough, not good enough. It's miserable. 
But listen, the law is not designed to make you righteous. The law is designed to show you what righteousness is. Do you notice the difference? It's a very important difference to notice. When we look into the mirror of the perfect law, we can see ourselves clearly. And what do we see? Unclean, sinful, unrighteous. It's what you're supposed to see. We are failures before God. Romans 7, 7 says, What shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if I, it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. You see, the law drives us to God. Because what does the law tell you? You're unclean, but God can make you clean. You're sinful, but God can forgive you. You're unrighteous, but God can make you righteous. That's what the law teaches us. You cannot look to yourself. You have to look to God. And this is why the law always includes sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins. This is my third point, the sacrifices of the covenant. Now, the sacrifices of the law presuppose that people are sinful and need constant forgiveness. We learn in the Abrahamic covenant that God would provide a substitute for the life of his people. Because Abraham, when he took his son Isaac up to the mountain to offer his son to God, Abraham knew by faith that God would provide. Here's what he says, Genesis 22.8. He says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And on that mountain, God provided a ram as a substitute for the life of his son. And this sets up a pattern by which God was preparing his people. Because when the tabernacle came, God provided it with a long list of different kinds of sacrifices that could be made for Israel. There was number one, the burnt offering, where the whole animal was offered up on the brazen altar to go up in smoke and ascend into heaven. There was number two, the grain offering, where the worshipper could offer up to God some of the produce with which the priest was, would eat on their behalf to symbolize their communion with God. You had the peace offering, and that's where the worshipper could actually eat a meal with God. Number four, there was the sin offering, which was when a person had committed an unintentional sin against God and could offer, get forgiveness for it. And lastly, very similar to the sin offering, was the guilt offering. And that was when someone would sin against their fellow Israelites. When they would do something horrible to someone else, they would offer a guilt offering to the Lord for forgiveness. But there was one important sacrifice of the Mosaic Law. We could focus on all five of those, but we'd be here for a long time. But I just want to focus on the Day of Atonement. This was a day when the high priest would offer a sacrifice for himself and for his household, right? Because he is a covenantal head of the household, so if his children are sinning, that's his responsibility. So he has to offer a sacrifice not only for himself, but for his children as well, and for his wife, who he is the head over. And then, he, after sacrificing for himself, is turned into the representative of Israel. And he would then go and offer a sacrifice for the sins of Israel. And this was kind of a reset of the tabernacle. He would go and he would basically sprinkle blood over everything. We're not going to go through and say everything that he did it on because it's a very long list. But he sprinkles blood over everything. Why? Because the tabernacle has dwelt, God's holy tabernacle has been in the midst of a sinful people for a long time. It's been a year, so we have to make atonement for everything now because this has been dwelling with a sinful people for a year. And so we've got to kind of reset it so that God can continue to dwell with His people. 
Now, there's a whole chapter on the Day of Atonement, but I want to focus on one aspect of it. We see two goats. Two goats get brought forward. The high priest would cast a lot, and he would select one. One goat would be for God, and the other goat would be for Azazel. You might be thinking, what on earth is Azazel? It's a good question. You see, that, that one goat that the lot felled to God, that would be sacrificed for the sin of Israel, so that Israel could be forgiven. But the other goat, have a listen to what happens to the other goat, Leviticus 16.10. But the goat on which the lot for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Well, who is this Azazel dude? He is the God, one of the gods of the wilderness. His name literally in Hebrew means goat god. That's what his name means. And God directs Israel to give to Azazel this goat. Now, this isn't a sacrifice to Azazel. They're not worshipping Azazel because this goat doesn't get killed. In fact, this goat gets marched out of the camp and it gets taken all the way out in the wilderness and the guy who lets it go in the wilderness as far away from the camp as possible so that it can't come back in. Why are they doing this? Because they're giving to Azazel what belongs to him. Rebellion. Sin. He gives to Azazel what his band of rebellious spirits deserve. The sins of Israel don't belong in the nation of God. They belong in the kingdom of darkness. They belong out there in the dark wilderness. All of the things that are the opposite of Eden, right? God is restoring Eden in this world. He's he's bringing them to a land flowing with milk and honey, just as bountiful as Eden. And all the things that are the opposite of Eden, like sin, get sent out into the anti-Eden place. The wilderness, where there's no water, there's no green thing, there's no life, there's no blessing. That's where our sin belongs. Not in the camp of Israel. And it was a reminder to the Israelites every year we need to be atoned for. We need to leave that old kingdom behind. We need to leave our sins behind. The New Testament would pick up on this kind of language and talk about us killing our old men and leaving them behind and pressing into the new life that God has given to us. Now the Day of Atonement is just a good in look into also the rest of the sacrifices of the covenant. It reminds them that they're sinful, that they need to be forgiven. It's not enough for God to simply wipe all these sins under the rug. Something needs to take the punishment for God's justice to be satisfied. And that's why in all these sacrifices, there was a set criterion. The sacrifice had to be without blemish. The best in the field, right? You can't just offer the lame goat that no one wants to God. It has to be the best one. It has to be a certain age. All these criterion which was an object lesson to the Israelites on what forgiveness takes. Hebrews 9.22 tells us, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. An animal has to stand in your place to die on your behalf so that you can continue living to God. And this is what we call a substitutionary atonement. This is what we learn about it in God's law. But the problem with these sacrifices is they're only temporal. They didn't take away sin. You had to keep coming back again and again and again and to be cleansed by the blood of another animal. 
Hebrews brings this up in uh, chapter 10, verse 1. He says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. It's like every sacrifice you offer, you're never truly forgiven. You never make it across the line. You never get to enter into the presence of God. It shows the Israelites it was beyond them. They had to trust in God for their righteousness. They had to say with Abraham in Genesis 22.8, God will provide for himself the lamb. They didn't know how God was going to fix everything. They didn't know how God was going to reconcile them to himself. They just had to trust that he would. Right? Because what were the Israelites doing? They were saying, God, you brought us up here to die. The person who doesn't trust in God and trusts in their own good works, and when they find out that they're still sinners, they say, God, you have brought me through this life of obedience to you so that I would die in your presence and that you would judge me. What? Are they not the same thing? You think after God has provided for you and done everything for you and given you all of these things, that your trust in Him, your trust that He will save you, that you will be let down? Is that not the exact same thing the Israelites were saying? It's an affront to God to believe in His Son, for Him to tell you that you'll be saved in His Son, and to think, I don't think I am. I don't think God has good intentions to me. In fact, I think I'm going to die in the wilderness like everyone else. You can be like those ten spies and think it's impossible. Or you can be like Caleb and Joshua who knew by faith that God would give them the land inhabited by these terrifying nations even though they didn't know how God was going to do it. See, that's what faith is. Faith is trusting in someone that you know is trustworthy and God is trustworthy. You don't know how He's going to rescue and, and solve a lot of issues, but you know that He will because He is good. God didn't lead them out to the wilderness to kill them. And he didn't enter into a covenant with them to send them to hell when they die. They just had to trust him, to love him, to obey him as their great God and hope in his goodness when they stand before him face to face. If you reject him, there no longer remains a sacrifice, but a terrifying expectation of judgment, Hebrews tells us. Do not fall away from Christ. From the vantage point of the new covenant, we know now how God will rescue us. Hebrews 7, 26 to 27 says, For it is indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, that is Jesus, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests who had to offer the sacrifices for themselves, for their own sins and for those of the people in the Day of Atonement, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus is that perfect substitute. He is the sacrifice that is offered up to God to save for himself a people. He is the sacrifice that washes us free from all uncleanness forever. And we will never be unclean before God if we are in Christ. It's a sacrifice that washes us free from sin forever. That separates our sin as far as from the east is from the west. That washes us, even though our sins are as uh, uh, crimson red, it washes it as white as snow. We will never fall into the judgments of the law. We are saved by our trust in Jesus. And it's the same for Israel. They are saved by their trust 
in Jesus. You might say, well, they never knew him. Well, Abraham was saved by Jesus. The Bible tells us that. Moses was saved by Jesus. Caleb and Joshua were saved by Jesus. Why? Because they trusted God. And God provided a sacrifice for them in his son Jesus. Their faith in God was not in vain. They may not have known the name of God's son, but they knew that God would rescue them. And at the right time, God made atonement for all his people for all time, whether they lived in the wilderness, in that camp, or in the Roman Empire when Jesus was there, or in the 21st century Australia. All people across all time who trust in the true and living God, all those people are set free by their faith in Christ. And the law will no longer stand above them as a way to condemn them, but they are saved and rescued by the love of their God. And that is us, if we continue to trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, how wonderful it is to be able to look into your perfect law, to know what righteousness is, to know how to please you, to how to honour you, how to live our lives by keeping your commandments. But Lord, we thank you that our righteousness is not established by our obedience to the law, but by the obedience of your Son, Jesus. That by our faith in him, we are set free from the perfection that the law requires, so that we can now continue a life lived in grace, where we have the law written on our hearts, where we can obey you from the depths of our fiber and our being because of the work of what Jesus has done. And I pray, Lord, that we would never turn aside from you, that we would never doubt your goodness, that we'd never doubt your sacrifices, that we'd never doubt that you indeed are the sovereign king over this universe and that you will have the nations, that you will be successful, that you will rescue mankind and that we will dwell with you securely, safe, in rest from all of our enemies, especially our greatest one, death. 